Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. We're going to talk a little bit about why today is good. It's funny to say good afternoon on Good Friday when everybody doesn't feel good, maybe. Um, And it, it seems like it's a contradiction, but there's actually a paradox in it. And so today we're going to read from the, the source of the New Testament quotation in John 19 that says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. But we're reading from Zechariah chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remained, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask today as we uh, find ourselves in uh, a sober service and as we meditate on the sacrifice of your Son, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus hung on a cross and many people looked on him that day as he, as, he hung, as he was hanging there. And they saw him, and the way they saw him depended on how their eyes were seeing. And if, I, if I'm going to explain this, I think I wanted to s- just describe the different ways that people were looking at Jesus that were there at the foot of the cross looking at him. So you had, you had his mother which was in the reading that Pastor Weeks read to us, and his aunt, and women that had ministered to him as he traveled around speaking. They were looking at him, and how were they looking at him? They were looking at him like, here's my son, here's my nephew, here's the the rabbi, the one who taught me, the one who talked to me about my sin, who who brought me to a place where he he said I I could live for him. There were others there, like the soldiers, and they were Romans, and they were looking at him, and they were probably thinking a lot. We know what one of them was thinking after, uh, after the piercing of his side, but, but they were probably looking at him, and he was just like another day at work, another Jew 
that we bring the capital crime punishment on. And we're just going to sit here and we're going to throw dice and play games until this is done. We're just going to kill time while this is done. Others there were bystanders, and they were looking at it like um, a spectacle. Maybe they, you know, like we look at a, an accident on the side of the road. They're just, oh, look at that. That's happening. Pretty graphic. Then there were religious leaders and, and people there who had seen him as a menace and as their competition. And they were looking at him, and they were just glad that there was an opportunity for him to be crushed. This will end it. This will end it, and we'll crush him, and it'll be over. There were scoffers there. There are always scoffers. Every time there's a crowd of people, there are always scoffers. And scoffers do what scoffers do. They mock. And so they mocked him. They mocked him. They found something that he had said, and then they mocked him. They found something that he had done, and so they mocked him for it. You know, you saved other people. Save yourself. And they scoffed at him. People who saw him that day saw him in much the same way and with the same eyes that they had seen him with as he walked with them. His mother, his aunt, those women, soldiers who may have seen him, the religious leaders people that were in the crowds, people that had followed him around, scoffers even, had been around him before that day. And they probably saw him in those earlier days, much like they saw him as he was hanging on the cross. And people who saw him in that way are much the same as people who live today, who are presented with Jesus Christ and who see him in the way that they see him. Now, I'm not talking about visibly, obviously, because uh, none of us have seen him visibly. And many people all through the history of the Christian church have lived, except for those ones right there at the primitive church who were there when he was alive, they have not seen him visibly. But they have been presented with him. I'm sorry, presented, yes, presented with him. And so in that presentation, they see Jesus. And so you hear people talking about what they see. Well, some people see a beloved teacher. There's, oh, his teaching is so good. Love, that's so good, teaching. Some people just see another Jew. There's another Jew. That's the Jesus Jew, right? Some people see a moral influencer. They see like... um, like the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, uh, what good thing shall I do? They're looking at Jesus and, and they see him as good. He calls him good. Good teacher. What good thing shall I do? But as the man comes, as we see in the account, as he comes, he's actually revealing something about himself. He's looking at Jesus in a very specific way as a, as a self-righteous man. He lists off, oh, I did that. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I did that. And Jesus surgically disabuses him of all of his self-righteous notions, right? He doesn't give him the answer that he thinks. He thinks he'll get an assignment that's just as easy as all the other things he's done perfectly. But instead, what does he get? He gets this, uh, this incredible surgical operation. Very succinct, very short. Oh, you only need to do one thing. Love God more than money. 
And, and the man is completely undone, completely exposed, and he goes away. And it's over. He saw Jesus a, a certain way, and he didn't get what he thought he was going to get when he was confronted with him. And many of us see Jesus that way today. I'm pretty good. Anything else I need to do? Anything yet that I lack here? Uh, what, what thing should I do? What should I do? You know, just, just so I get all of the stars on my chart. You know the chart in school that you had where they put the star on? You put the star on? Yeah, I did that. I did that. Some people today see him as a spectacle. Have you been to the ark experience? Is it, a, is it a spiritual adventure or is it a spectacle? It's To be truthful, it's probably more spectacle than spiritual adventure. Maybe it's not true for you. But I understand it's quite a spectacle. I have to confess to you the only reason that I want to see it is to see something that's that big made of wood. Okay? Don't be um, scandalized by me saying that. Go see it. I'm glad for you to go see it. And today people look at Jesus that way. He's a spectacle. He's something that's uh, on the side of the road. Oh, look at the Christians. Look at that Jesus question. For others, he's a problem solver, as he was in his day. People came to him and said, Dispute, my brother and I are fighting about the inheritance. Help us solve this problem for us. And today people come to Jesus and they want more money. They solve my financial problems. And... We all know of preachers promising that all the time. Or they've got a health issue, solve my health problems. Or they, they need the relationship repaired, solve my relationship problems, right? Uh, heal, my, heal me inside. I'm so wounded and hurt from all of those things everybody did to me. Now, I'm not belittling the fact that you may be wounded and hurt. But I watch these guys advertising to heal you of your wounds and hurts for everything everybody did to, to you. And I want to tell you, you run as fast as you can away from them. Because they won't bring you to any resolution before God. They'll just destroy you. Okay? It's a bizarre kind of world. And it's all around us. In the church and outside. Some people looked at him as a gift giver. They, he brought them fish and bread. And he said to them, you only, came for, you only follow me for fish and bread. That's all you think I am is you think I'm a vending machine for fish and bread. You give gifts, right? And we have the same thing that's, that's true today. Uh, I, I go to Jesus for as little as possible to satisfy something in myself. I, got the, I have this religious, you know, need, uh, this, whole, this religious hole in my heart. And I need something to satisfy it. So I, I'm going to go to Jesus and get that. And it's just nice that the church I found has free fountain drinks and a Starbucks in the lobby. It's great. And I'm going to, and I'm going to fill this need. But, you know, we talk uh, occasionally about cheap grace. And that would be a good way to understand cheap grace. It's like just, just enough to satisfy something without really knowing that you really had something you needed that needed to be satisfied or taken care of. Just a little bit, you know, about on the level of free fountain drinks and coffee, okay? Or bread and fish. 
Some people look at Jesus as a menace. And you see that as they're angry when presented with any, present, any presentation of Jesus. They just makes them angry because he's a threat to them for whatever reason. And it might be financial. Right? And some people just come to mock. If you want to, don't do it. But if you want any, any endless number of people mocking Jesus, just listen to comedians. Because the, the, there was a time when mocking Jesus was verboten. It wasn't allowed. But if you watch today, mocking Jesus is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And it's fascinating because <laughs> it does more to establish his, the truth of who he is than about anything. Watching mockers, if you watch mockers, uh, they often can give you a good bead on what's true. Okay? Zechariah's prophecy was fulfilled in a moment. There was, there was a dirt path. There were stones on it. There was a tree that was chopped to make an actual wooden apparatus. It was borne by Christ to, uh, to the place of execution. Uh, there were tufts of grass here and there. There were um, people milling about. There was a, a particular hue, color to the sky. There were certain clouds formations that day. Everything was real in real time. It happened in real time. The people who were there were the people there. The people at that particular moment, those who witnessed him at that particular moment, they're the only people that were ever there at that particular moment in the flesh. It was real. It happened in a moment. But it also happened in something much bigger than a moment. Because it had another fulfillment that, that has a spiritual implication and application that stretches back to the work of covering the first sin, temporarily covered with animal skins, and went forward all the way into the future to cover the very last sin that's, that's committed before God says, the end. You know, the, the, the period, there's the last sin, covered. The end. And it has that expansive reality to it, so that his cross is now for you. He doesn't have to be sacrificed again. He hasn't been sacrificed. The Roman Catholics have this completely wrong. And it's horrific. He's not being sacrificed again and again and again. That sacrifice, that moment in time, spreads out over all time, and the work is efficacious for all sin that it covers. Boom. It's alive, it's now. So Zechariah describes the one they pierced, they'll look on the one they pierced, and then he talks about a universal mourning, but he just really talks about a universal mourning. It's not just a little mourning, it's uh, this 
family mourns and the women mourn and this family mourns and the women mourn and that tribe mourns and the women mourn and Jerusalem mourns and the women mourn and everybody everywhere mourns and the women mourn. It's like we're, gonna, we're taking this all away. I don't know why it says and the women mourn. I was thinking about that and I don't think I can build anything on it. Stephen, got anything? I, I wondered this morning if it wasn't just as a as a window to look in at the, the wonderful privilege and special reality of those women set, standing at the base of the cross. But that, that's like a far-fetched thing, right? The, but the real point that's obvious is, everybody's mourning, let's, let's push this to its, its extreme and say, everybody who looks on him whom they pierced is going to mourn. Everybody who sees it and contemplates it is going to mourn. And so, it's stretching through all time. We ask ourselves the question, were you there? Were you there when they crucified the Lord? And the answer to that question is, well, no, I wasn't one of the ones that was standing there physically. But yes, I I actually was there. Because that day, two things represented me. One of them was the cross. And one of them was the Savior, right? And so I'll take a, talk about that in a minute. But we call this Good Friday. We call today Good Friday. But we feel much more like, it's like one of my grandchildren said, I was driving them to school this week, one of my grandchildren said, uh, I can't wait, we don't have any school on Black Friday. <laughs> and really, that's how we feel about today. That's more of our internal feeling of today is Black Friday, not so much Good Friday. And it's appropriate if, if it's appropriate in the correct way. If, it's, if we understand what they understood or what they were meant to understand, having been given the Spirit and having pierced Him in the prophecy and having them mourn. If, they, if we understand, if we're there in that sense, then we understand both the mourning and the joy. John Calvin says, the grief with which the Jews felt for the death of Christ is not what's described in Zechariah, but rather that by which they were touched when God opened their eyes to repent for their own perverseness. For the death of Christ, we allow, is a cause of joy to us rather than of sorrow. But the joy arising from Christ's death cannot shine in us until our guilt really wounds us through God's appearing to us as a threatening judge. From this sorrow there arises the desire to repent and the true fear of God. Hence it is that God himself will give us joy, for he will not have us, as Paul says, to be swallowed up by sorrow. He lays us prostrate, he lays us out on the ground, that he may again raise us up. We have to see the crucifixion with the correct eyes. Calvin says we cannot have the joy connected with his life and death unless we have the appropriate sorrow and repentance connected with our own lives. The cross, the Messiah. The sorrow connected with our own lives. Why? Because 
Jesus' rejection by the, by the Father should have been mine. Jesus' suffering should have been mine. Jesus' death should have been mine. That cross should have been mine. You see? And once we start to see that, we realize that's what we deserved. Now, have you ever said, I didn't deserve this? You ever said that? I actually said those words to God. It was a stupid thing to say. And I'm thankful to him that he corrected me right away. And my, the immediate thought that went through my mind was, do you really want to know what you deserve? We deserved it. That's what we deserved. We deserve that cross. We deserve that rejection. But in order for us to see that we deserved it, we have to have a type of sight that comes from miraculous intervention. And this is illustrated in Peter's confession of Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say this prophet, some say that prophet, some say John the Baptist, some say... Uh, and Jesus says, well, yeah, yeah. But, but those men were saying what people saw in Jesus, the eyes with which people saw Jesus. That's what they were describing. Some say they see you as this, some say they see you as that. And, he's, and Jesus says, well, who do you think, that, who do you say that I am? And Peter says... Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But the heavenly Father opened your eyes to see who I was. That's how that happened. It took something miraculous. It took an intervention. Peter had no ability None of us had any ability to give to Peter the ability to see that Jesus was the Christ. Only God could do that. In order to see that the cross of Christ is actually our cross, we have to have it revealed to us by God. And 2 Corinthians 4 says that that truth is veiled to those who are perishing, but that God actually shines in our hearts the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Just like he said, let there be light, it says, just as the same God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. The God who said, let there be light. He is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We can't see Christ the way we need to see him unless God does a work in us. We have no ability. That work is foreshadowed in the account of Israel and the, and the serpents. They were sinning against God, they were grumbling, they were complaining, and God sent snakes. And snakes were biting people, and they were pleading with Moses, and Moses pleaded with God, you know, have mercy on them. God said, okay, do this. Put, get a stick, make a bronze snake, stick it on top of the stick, and stand up on the hill. And whenever somebody gets bit, tell them, look at the snake. Look at the snake. And so Moses did it. 
and somebody get bit and they'd look at the snake. Now, did, did, was, was everyone else uh, told not to look at the snake? You're not bit. Don't look at the snake. You think anybody else looked at the snake? I'm pretty sure they did. It's an interesting thing, even just out of curiosity, if Moses is standing there with a stick with a snake on it, they're probably going to look. Did they look at the snake with the same eyes as the people who just had the puncture wounds in their leg? Who were told that the snake would heal them and that they wouldn't die. Do you think they looked at him with the same eyes? No. No, absolutely not. And so, that is repeated later. So, what's the most popular and well-known verse of the Bible? Now, I was, I, was, uh, I was told that I might be wrong. Somebody told me after the first service that it might be, uh, judge not that you'll not be judged these days. But other than that, what's the most popular and well-known verse of the Bible? John 3.16, for God's love of the world. Do you know what comes in John, John 3.14 and 15? Do you know what it says in John 3.14 and 15? So interesting. Why don't we quote this first? Okay, what's, what comes first? What comes first is, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Now we lose a huge amount of understanding when we don't quote John 3, 14, and 15 before we quote John 3, 16. Because what we lose is we lose the whole comprehension of, uh, uh, of uh, the people having eyes to see. Who looks to the snake in the wilderness but the people who are bit? And who's going to look to Jesus? They're here compared to the snake in the wilderness, but the people who are bit. And who's bit? Yeah, you and I, Lord willing, you're bit. And you know that you need salvation. Those people in the wilderness needed someone that they, 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 they were feeling the terrors of death by snake bite. And so they were able to look to the bronze serpent. Only someone who knows the terrors of perishing in the wrath of God can have eyes to look to Christ for life. And that's what we need. We need to see. We need to see. Do you look on him who you pierced? What eyes do you look at Christ with? How do you see Jesus? What kind of eyes? Who is he? What do you see? How would you describe him? You know, um, there's a verse in 2 Corinthians 13 that says, test yourselves to see if you're in, your, in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. And, you know, that's always in, whenever you buy those precious Bible promise books, that's one of the first verses in there, always. Test yourselves to see if you're really a Christian. Right? It's, it's right up there with, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Or, anyone who desires to live godly in this life will be persecuted. Those are all my favorites. 
right? What eyes do you see Christ with? Are you thinking about yourself? Are you thinking about testing? Are you thinking about looking and, and trying to see the inward look? You can look at outward things. Yes, you can. You can see how you've changed, but you changed inwardly before you changed outwardly. Some people won't even look at the, the realities of how they've changed. They look at the realities of things that they've done, like the rich young man. And maybe you're thinking, well, I got baptized, and, you know, I, um, I tithe. And we, we're, we're so superficial that we look at those outward things and we think, well, that's what it's all about. And we don't want to spend time thinking about the inward things. Annie and I were teaching the children's membership class, and these are all kids about age 10, probably average. And this past week was about baptism, but we were talking about that which is outward and visible versus that which is inward and invisible. And you could tell that, that there was this little bit of this kind of, as some of those children are here, you could tell there was this little bit of unsettledness about it. Because getting baptized or not getting baptized, that's easy. You can see that. That's outward. That's visible. But they could give an account of something inward and invisible. So their assignment was to go home and talk to mom and dad and say, Mom, Dad, would you please tell tell me about that inward, invisible thing in your life about Jesus? Tell me. Can you testify to me about that inward, invisible thing? And that's the assignment. And, and so when the Bible says that we're supposed to be ready uh, to make a defense to anyone of uh, the account of the hope that is in us, what kind of defense are you going to give? Well, I got baptized, and you know, I tithe. You should get baptized. You should tithe. But people aren't going to look at that and say, whoa, wow, that's great. I can see why you have hope. Now, if you're going to give a defense of something, give a defense of that which is inside and invisible. I'll tell you what happened. I came face to face with the fact that I was going to die eternally. And I deserved it. And God made me see the glory of Christ. And his, and his cross. And it's joyful. I'm sorrowful on Good Friday because that cross, that's all about my sin. But I am thrilled on Good Friday because that Savior, He took my place. You have sin. I know you. I could just go through. You want me to? And, and a good many of you know me, and you could go through my list too, okay? And that is the wonderful thing that God makes our hearts to see. And when we see it, as Calvin says, we are laid prostrate <laughs> on the ground, <laughs> But he doesn't leave us there. He then shows us the Savior and lifts us up. And like Ecclesiastes said, it's better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. Because in the house of mourning, 
you, you can actually have hope. And that's kind of Good Friday. It's better to be in this house than in the feasting house. Because in this house you can have hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you today that you are kind to us and that you love us in, in, the, in the reality of our being sinners and that you intervene and open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see our own sin and in desperation see and receive the work that was done for us by Christ on that cross, our cross, Father. Thank you. Make us awake. Awaken us, awaken our children, awaken our friends and our neighbors. Give us mouths that will witness to your glory in this matter. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.